Welcome to the weekly teaching podcast of Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas, recorded live at 2828 Crossover in Fayetteville, Arkansas. For notes and resources accompanying this teaching, visit gracechurchnwa.org. Thanks for listening. We're glad you're here. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church, and I'm so glad to be here this morning. And pardon that uh, feedback that we had here just a minute ago. I know that was loud, but it's, it's, uh, it's not jet engine loud. Jet engine loud is 121 decibels. And I don't understand how this works. I don't understand how they gauge sound with that. But they, they measure it in the number of decibels that things sound. And 121 is, is really, really loud. 121 is rock concert, jet engine and it is also Annalisa Flanagan loud. Anybody know who Annalisa Flanagan is? Heard that name? Well, she is a school teacher from County Down in Ireland, and she can shout at 121 decibels. She holds the Guinness Book of World Records record for the loudest voice ever recorded. And it is 121 decibels loud. Now, how, how far away do you think you could be? It was like if you were a kid and she was your mom, you, you could never get away from her, right? You could never use that excuse, well, I didn't hear you when you called me for supper, right? Because you could be playing in England and she could call you from Ireland and you would have to respond with that. Um, but I want you to imagine a sound now that's louder than that. And I want you to imagine a sound that not only travels over space, but actually travels time. I want you to imagine a sound that transcends place and time and echoes throughout eternity. We're going to listen to that sound today. We're going to listen to that sound as we study how the Thessalonian church received the good news of the gospel and did so in such a way that it created a testimony, it created an echo, it created a sound that, that the gospel writers, as we'll read today, say, say they said it went all through the region of Macedonia, which was a very large region, but what they even didn't know is that it would continue to resonate throughout history into Fayetteville, Arkansas this morning. So pray with me as we start this study this morning. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear. We need ears to hear this message, this sound. We need eyes to see, but more than that, we need hearts to receive and obey. Because this testimony has reached us. What happened 2,000 years ago in this city has reached us. And we pray that you would give us the grace to integrate this into our lives, not just to hear about it but to act upon it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So Alex um, so eloquently stole the start of my sermon this morning um, when he gave his intro. But for those of you who may have come in late, what we're doing with this study, this Can I Get a Witness study, is we are bouncing back and forth. So for three years, we studied the story of Jesus. We studied the Synoptic Gospels. And we ended with the disciples all gathered together, awaiting the Holy Spirit. After the resurrection, they spend 40 40 days with, with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. They wait, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and everything changes in their life. They go from being timid and ignorant or um, uncontrolled in their ways, and they are all of a sudden, they are transformed into these men and women who are willing to die, to give up everything, and to die to spread the message of Jesus. And as Randall said so eloquently last week, that if there is anything that proves out the existence of Jesus... If there's anything that proves the reality of what is said in the gospel, it is in the testimony of the lives of the apostles that they believed what they were doing so much, even if it cost them their lives. And so we're looking at that, and then we're looking at, well, how did then, did the early communities receive this? How then did those people who never set foot in Jerusalem, how then did those people who never had a physical encounter with Jesus, how did they receive the gospel and what did it do in their life? And the first group we're looking at is this group in Thessalonica. Now Thessalonica is a fascinating city. And we're not going in sequential order of of the Acts of the Apostles. We're looking at them in, in various states for various reasons. But Thessalonica was one of the major areas of commerce and history that we'll see in just a minute about this. But let's read the words in Acts that tell about when Paul and Silas first landed in Thessalonica. It said, after they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. Paul went to the Jews in the synagogue as he customarily did, and on three Sabbath day he addressed them from the scriptures explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, pause for a minute. Paul, probably, Paul and Silas probably didn't show up and go straight to the synagogue. There's other evidence as you study, and I hope you will, that you look at this, is that they probably got there months in advance, set up the tent-making business, started to integrate with the community, learn who the, the significant people were, form a reputation, and then earn, kind of earned their way to speak in the synagogue when they did this. They also knew from previous experiences that probably when they started proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, things were going to get nutty pretty quick. <laughs> they, uh, they had done this enough to this point to know that when they proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, in these cities, there was often a violent reaction. So they had prepared themselves, and they go into the synagogue, and as we'll see, they were right in expecting that. It goes along, it says, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large group of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But the Jews became jealous And gathering together some worthless men from the rabble in the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. 
They attacked Jason's house, trying to find Paul and Silas and bring them out to the assembly. Now, they just kind of throw out Jason there. Jason was obviously the one who had hosted them, who had brought them in, and who was helping support them and give them platform. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, screaming, these people who have stirred up trouble throughout the world have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them as guests. They're all acting against Caesar's decree, saying there is another king named Jesus. They caused confusion among the crowd and the city officials who heard these things. Now, as we're going to learn, Macedonia or uh, Thessalonica is the capital of Macedonia, and under the rule, um, if you wanted to keep that status, that kind of preferential status, you had to be very careful not to off- offend Caesar. You had to do everything you could to maintain the reputation with the government. And so the Jews, knowing this, that's the accusation they make. That's why they're saying this whole thing against Caesar. Listen, the Jews, the Jews didn't care about Caesar. They didn't, they didn't care anything about making Caesar happy. They were just using this as a tactic to get to Paul and Silas. After the city officials had received bail from Jason and the others, they released him. The brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. Berea is another place we're going to study. At once, during the night, when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. The Jews there were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they eagerly received the message, examining the scriptures carefully every day to see if these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with quite a few prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that Paul had been proclaiming the word of God in Berea, they came there too, inciting and disturbing the crowds. So it wasn't enough, it wasn't enough for those that opposed the message in Thessalonica to run Paul and Silas out in the middle of the night. They were chasing them to other towns where they came. And from that, we can infer that this persecution of the Christians and the followers of the way in this place was very very intense. This was not something that they were going to put up with one bit, but we're going to continue to follow them and persecute them. So where is Thessalonica? We've got this map here, and we can see we do have a map, don't we, Donnie? There? Yes, there it is. So this is, I know that's far away, but what you, what you want to know from this map is that where Thessalonica is located is an incredibly strategic place. It's right along the road that surrounds the Aegean Sea, the Via um, Ignatia. And it was, a, it was a great natural seaport, place of commerce. Everything that was going on in that part of the world ran through Thessalonica. We know that it was a major city in the Roman Empire, that it was, the next slide, it was uh, robust politically and economically. It, it, it had quite a bit of favor. But along with that, it was a seaport town. It was a bustling town. It was renowned for its sinful behavior with that. We still see that today, right? Seaport cities. It's, it's generally there's some stuff going on there that's pretty rough with that. It was also a cosmopolitan city. There was a large mix of different people from different cultures there. As a matter of fact, the, um, the small but strong Jewish community that was there at the time of Paul continued all the way up until World War II, where unfortunately when the Nazis occupied um, Thessalonica, they shipped the entire population, Jewish population from this town to the concentration camps. And so that 
that part was there until World War II. We also know that this church, this church that we're reading about here, grew to be the major church of early Eastern Christianity. And the church is still there today. Does it, does it, I know, as Americans, we're so used to new stuff, right? We're all about the newest, the latest, the thing like that. Does it, does it strike anybody as strange to say, hey, you can go to this church? Like the church we're reading about in the Bible today that started with Paul and Silas. You can go visit that church. Does that strike anybody as strange? It does. I mean, it does me. Because I always kind of separate. I always kind of separate out. Well, that's the church that they were talking about way back in Bible times. It's kind of like the Hittites or the Amorites or the Jebusites. You know, you're not going to a Jebusite restaurant anywhere here in Fayetteville, right? That's like word. Those are old words. Those are old things. And yet the church of Thessalonica exists today. Now, does it look anything like that? From everything I've read, it's very different. It's an Eastern Orthodox church, which would be very different worship experience than what we have here at Grace. But it's there. It's endured. Jason, think about that. Jason receives into his house Paul and Silas, listens to their testimony, receives the gospel. 2,000 years later, there's a church still there. Can you imagine the tribulation? Can you imagine the changes? Can you imagine the conflict, the tension, the things that that church has had to endure for 2,000 years to be sustained? And yet, it is. It's still there. So let's see what Paul writes. And then we, get, we have the two letters that Paul wrote back to the church that was so gracious to him that received a message that actually saved his life by getting him out of town in the middle of the night that bore the brunt of the persecution and yet continued on. This is what he writes back to them. He says, From Paul and Silvanius and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We thank God always for all of you as we mention you constantly in our prayers. Because we recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your endurance and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you In that our gospel did not come to you merely in words, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Surely you recall the chapter, the character we displayed when we came among you to help you. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord when you received the message with joy that comes from the Holy Spirit despite great affliction. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you the message of the Lord has echoed forth, not just in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place reports of your faith in God have spread, so that we do not need to say anything. For people everywhere report how you welcomed us and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven who raised whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, our deliverer from the coming wrath. Wow. We're in Fayetteville, Arkansas, 2,000 years later. 
probably as removed culturally as you can be removed. And we are still talking about this faith, this hope, this love. That, my friends, is an echo. That is a shout that the Guinness Book of World Records cannot even begin to record. That is something that makes the difference in people's lives and communities and indeed into eternity. But let's, let's look for a minute. How did they do this? What was it that was so profoundly powerful about it? How did these believers in Thessalonica imitate Jesus? Because we really don't have specifics. I mean, I went through, we, the teaching team, we went through and we pulled out all the times that Thessalonica is referred to in the Thessalonians and Jason and these people. And you would think if this was such a profound testimony, we would have like a, a biography of Jason and the church there. But really in the biblical record, we don't, we don't see much. We see that they welcomed, they showed hospitality, that they stood fast in their faith, that they turned and they stopped worshiping idols. But other than that, I mean, what was it? What was it that was so profound? I think we have an answer a little bit later. Now, here's where, here's where it helps to engage in understanding the, the flow of history with this. And here's how it helps also to understand in our own lives that a lot of the things that we're doing now, we really don't know what's going to last. We really don't know what people are going to say after us. Like, if we're caught up in immediate, seeing immediate results, oftentimes we're going to be disappointed, truth be told, right? Like, we want change so fast. We want to be recognized so quick. We want things to happen so quickly. And we often don't see that. And it's often until, not until we look back after a year or 10 years or even 100 years that it's looked back upon to see the real influence of what has happened, like we're doing with this church today. But in history, we have this this document, and it's called um, The Letter to Dagonetus. And it's called The Mystery of the New People. And here's a historian. He's writing about the Christians. This comes from somewhere, second, third century is where it's attributed to. And this is a writer who's describing the Christian church. These are the, the, the immediate subsequent generations of the Thessalonians. These are the people who have continued to live out in faith. And this is, this is right at the height of the persecution. For those of you who study church history, this is, this is before, um, before Christianity has become kind of accepted into society. There's still a persecuted group of people, officially persecuted by the Roman Empire, still persecuted by the Jews, a lot of conflict. And this is how they describe the Christians at that time. He says, For the Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by the country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use peculiar form of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. Now think about that for a minute. It's one of the most profoundly um, interesting things to me about Christians is we don't have the hajj. We don't make pilgrimages. We don't wear special underwear. 
I don't think most of us don't, at least. <laughs> we don't have a special language. We don't speak in Old English. We don't only read our Bibles in Greek and Hebrew. We make translations of them. Christianity is one of the few, if not one of the only religions, that is immediately adaptable to whatever culture it comes into. You do not have to renounce something, start wearing certain kind of clothes, eating certain kind of foods, um, speaking in a certain kind of way to become a Christian. That's not what distinguishes us as followers of Jesus. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say this. He says, although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, as each man's lot has been cast, and follow customs of the country in clothing and food and other matters of daily living. At the same time, they give proof of their remarkably and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. It continues on. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens, but they endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet from every fatherland, they are foreigners. They marry like everyone else and beget children, but they do not cast out their offspring. Back then, it was, it was a common custom just there that if you had a child that was unwanted, you would leave them out to die. You would just put them out in a field to allow them to die. So that's why they say that. They, don't, they beget their children, but they do not cast out their offspring. They share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but, they live, but their own lives go far beyond the laws required. They love all men, and by all men are persecuted. They are unknown, and still they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many, but yet through their lives they make many rich. They are, some are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are dishonored, and they're very dishonored. They are glorified. They are defamed, and they are vindicated. They are reviled, and yet they bless. When they are affronted, they still pay due respect. Now, who does that sound like? Who does that sound like who came as one of us? Who took on the form of humanness? Who ate like us? Dressed like us? Worked like us? was part of the community, was, uh, took part in the customs and practices, and yet at the same time was obviously, had a higher obedience, a higher loyalty, a higher affiliation, someone who was persecuted and yet did not strike back, someone who was defamed and did not curse back, someone who taught us to love our enemies, Someone who taught us to share all that we have with other people and did that thing? Who does that sound like? Yeah, this is one of those church answers. This is Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, you're tracking. You can nod your head. You're right. Yeah. That's how they imitated. This is what the early church did. They looked back to the life of Jesus and said, that's how I will live. That's how we, as a people, will live. Is like that. And they did it. And as a result, we're still talking about them 
2,000 years later. But what about, what about this behavior that was so different that their behavior echoed throughout the region? What specifically? Because Paul talks about this turning from idols and this welcoming and this, this showing of hospitality. We talk about what they did, but we have, to, we have to understand what the manner in which they did it. We live in an exciting place right now. Northwest Arkansas is an exciting place. Really, comparatively to the rest of the world, like I grew up in Austin during the, during the boom years of Austin, when every, everything was going crazy, real estate was going crazy, arts and entertainment were flourishing, there were new bands coming out. There were new restaurants opening. There was new things going on, much like here in northwest Arkansas right now. I mean, I, I don't think we fully understand how unique this is unless you've lived through it somewhere else and seen what it can be and what it can't be. But right now in our region, there is excitement to be here. And that's fun. That's great. I, I mean, I, I really enjoy that, but I have to watch myself. I really have to guard my heart that I'm not kind of absorbed into that. That I'm not pulled so much into it that my heart becomes so entangled in it that it becomes an idol. That it becomes what I really have my allegiance to. What I really worship. That my whole essence doesn't become wrapped up in how much money I can make or how easy or fun I can make my life. And that's the thing, is that was the same temptation, I think, that the Thessalonians encountered. Their town was much like this. It was, it was a new provincial capital. There was exciting people coming in. There was all kinds of opportunities to do all kinds of stuff. And yet it says they received the message with joy in spite of the great affliction, or thipsis is this, early, is this Greek word that talks about being hemmed in. It talks about being squeezed in. Because we are always, when, when we do this, when we receive the gospel with joy, it's going to create tension. It's going to create tension in your life. We've talked a lot about this, and it's, it's hard to see sometimes when everything looks like it's beautiful, it's springtime, it's going great, we're all having fun, economy's going good, everything's happening. But the call to follow Jesus will always put us in tension with the dominant culture. Now, I don't know how that works. I don't know what it is specifically, but I know it will happen. Because when we do this, when we receive this message with joy, we are constantly being called to turn away from idols, to turn away from other things, people, ideas, governments, obligations, identities, whatever it is, to turn away from those things, to become imitators of Jesus. And that's what this church did. Somehow they got this message and in the midst of a progressive and booming culture, they turned away from the dominant idolatry of the day and followed Jesus. And it cost them. 
And in somehow, in some ways, it was so evident that when they stuck it out and they didn't give up and they didn't deny and they continued to live that way, their testimony rang throughout the region and into this room today. Well, what about us? What does their example say to us today? Look, it's a profitable thing um, to try to define exactly what it means to be a Christian. Books, universities, churches, denominations all have a vested interest in defining down in very specific terms what it means to be a Christian. And uh, it's natural for us to want to do that. I don't know what it means, honestly. I don't know what it means for us to be a Christian, to be Christians. I'm learning it every single day. Every single day I'm learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus, both as an individual and as a member of this church. Because every day is different. Every day is bringing something new. What I do know is that it starts with this. It starts with imitating Jesus. It starts with going back to the source. It starts with going back to the fountainhead. Because, listen, we have 2,000 years of history. You want to talk about echo of history. We have the great examples, like the Thessalonians. We also have 1,000 examples of how to mess this up. We have more than enough examples of people blowing it, using the name of Jesus, using the name of God to wreak havoc, to oppress people, to deny people, to separate people, to isolate people, to shame people. Shame people in the name of God. And so if we start too far ahead, if we start trying to wade through all that stuff, I don't think we're ever going to find our way through. I think what it takes is a willingness to go back and say, what does it mean for me to be an imitator of Christ? What does it mean for me today to imitate this life? You know, Dallas Willard, again, and I've, I've mentioned this quote before, and it's one that I've taken to heart. He said, the world will tell you, you know, ask the question, what would Jesus do? But that's not the question. The question is, what would Jesus do if he were me? Because the life that I now live, I'm trying to live as if Jesus, it were Jesus living through me. Not that I'm going to do everything that Jesus did, But my goal, my desire, is that everything I do now, I do as if it were Jesus doing it through me. I think that's what it means to be an imitator, an icon, a reflection, a picture of Jesus. Christians, that literally means little Christ. That's that's what we are, is we're, we're icons, we're reflections. We're imitators of Jesus. 
That's what it means, both as individuals and as a community. We imitate Jesus. And so when we study a group like the Thessalonians and the different churches that we're going to see, what we're seeing is their attempt to do that, to imitate Jesus. And that's what it falls to us. Randall said last week, he said it very profoundly, he said, every subsequent generation is presented with the same opportunity to follow the gospel, to be transformed by the gospel. Grace Church, we're presented with that opportunity today. Everyone here is presented with that opportunity today. What are you going to do with that challenge? Are you going to get caught up in some kind of religiosity? Are you going to give your allegiance to some kind of religion? Are you going to give your allegiance to some kind of philosophy? Are you going to sell out for money, fame, power, adoration of the world, comfort of this life? You're going to imitate something. The question is not, are you going to imitate or are you not? The question is, what are you going to imitate? Who are you going to imitate? Are you going to imitate Donald Trump? Bernie Sanders? Insert other candidate here? What about some actor or actress, writer, business person, athlete? Who are you going to imitate? Who are you imitating, Grace Church? Who are we imitating? Is it Jesus? Because that's the only viable answer. That's the only one that saves. That's the only one that ultimately echoes throughout history. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And we're going to enter into this time of worship, of giving an offering, and then, like Sean said, we're going to see, and I'll talk a little bit about it more when when we get closer, we're going to see this ultimate imitation of Jesus in the form of baptism. Because that's what we're doing. That's what Josephine's going to do today. She's going to imitate Jesus. She's going to physically represent his obedience unto death and his being raised to new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what baptism does. But if you're seeking that right now, if your heart has responded to anything that's been said, if there's anything that's been said here, the Holy Spirit is moving, come and respond to that. Pray with someone that you trust during this time. Come to the table and receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus in the communion. We don't dismiss by rose. You come up as you feel led during this first song. We'll take our offering afterwards as an act of obedience, of sharing with one another with that. And then I'll come up a little bit later after that and uh, talk about the baptism. But in the meantime, we sing and we receive the blood, the sign of the new covenant, the gift of Jesus absolute, unconditional acceptance of us and his offer to us to be imitators of him. We receive the broken body, which is given as a sacrifice. We take this body of Jesus into our body as part of this imitation. And all who are seeking to imitate Jesus are welcome at this table. Thank you for being here this morning.
Thanks again for listening to the weekly podcast from Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas. If you have any comments or questions or would like to know more about us, visit gracechurchnwa.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram, too. We hope you join us again soon. In the meantime, grace and peace and have a great week.